Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 2 Samuel chapter 23 tonight. Uh, You'll notice that we only have a couple of chapters left in 2 Samuel, so you're probably thinking, like, where are we going from here? Uh, The answer is the first two chapters of 1 Kings. Um, and that's, that's it, because, because if we want to really wrap a bow around David, we have to go through the first two chapters of 1 Kings, because it kind of uh, extends through there. And so uh, we'll do that, and then um, we'll spring forward somewhere else, uh, and I'll leave you in, in uh, wonder about where that's going to be, because I am in wonder about where that's going to be at the present. But I have some ideas. I'm not totally uh, without without light on it, but uh, um, you can pray that the Lord would direct me. But we're in 2 Samuel 23 tonight. Let's pray and then uh, get into the message that God has for us. In fact, let's do it this way. Let me read first the first seven verses of chapter 23, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the message. And so uh, chapter 23, verse 1, it says this. It says, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial, or the sons of the devil, shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you tonight, Lord, that that you truly are here. And Lord, we acknowledge you as the one who spoke uh, the word of God and that is the truth. And we just thank you, Lord, for it and that we have the access to it and the uh, access to your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into it as it applies to our lives. So we just commit to you this time and this word and this chapter, and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice and how you would speak to us through what was written before. And so we look to you now, and we thank you for hearing us in this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A person's last words are usually very significant and meaningful and important. Uh, That could be the last words even in an exchange that happens between two people. The last words kind of summarize and encapsulate the tone and the content of what was discussed. In a courtroom, uh, the final arguments, the last words of an attorney are seeking to set their case in point and to crystallize it in the mind of a judge or a jury so as to sway or persuade concerning the outcome. And so also the last words of a person's life. They often serve to summarize, to memorialize, and in some way magnify or reveal the entire life in just a few words. 
And so I think of some of the great last words that have been spoken throughout history and how that actually fleshes out. I think of Samson's last words. He said, let me die with the Philistines. It was very telling of, of kind of the life that he lived and, uh, and the legacy that he would leave behind. I think of Jesus' last words. His last words were, it is finished. And that really does encapsulate all of what he came on the earth to do. He said, this is my purpose to do the Father's will and to finish his work. And he was able to say, it is finished, and it was. I think of other people throughout history, non-biblical figures. Queen Elizabeth I, her last words were, all my possessions for a moment in time. And you just think about how profound and and crazy it is to think of someone that could have all of the world's wealth and then come to the end and realize that they're about to leave it all behind and that it was all for nothing. I think of Julius Caesar and the famous last words that many of us have heard, et tu, Brute, right? You too, Brutus, as he saw his best friend and closest confidant among the conspirators that were taking his life. You know, but not all of them are serious. Sometimes uh, last words can be considered funny. I think of John Sedgwick, whose real last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> Those were his last words. He obviously was wrong. They got, they got through. They hit. Another one was, uh, this gun's not loaded. See? <laughs> I, I think of the famous last words that I often uh, almost say, like things like, this should be really easy. or what could possibly go wrong. You know, these are all uh, famous last words. I think the most famous last words of all were spoken by uh, the great Vincini, which were, never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line, you know. And if you don't know that one, that's okay. But what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 23, at least in the beginning, is we have the last recorded words of David. We could say the last inspired words of David. They're not literally his last words wherein he finished them and then he died, uh, but they're the last things that he wrote down, recorded, inspired by the Spirit of God uh, in order to communicate a message that he wanted to uh, communicate or reveal concerning his life. It is the way that he wanted to be remembered, and it is also what he wanted to be remembered about his life and about his message. And so he declares, and in a sense you could look at the beginning of this as the preamble to his last will and testament. And so what he declares is his identity, his journey, his calling, his legacy, and then his final message to humanity or to mankind. Okay, that's what he gives to us in this short little segment that is his last words. And he begins really with his identity. He speaks to us from an autobiographical point of view, and he tells us who he is at the root core of his being. And he begins by declaring his name and his lineage. He says, David, the son of Jesse. And and that's how he saw himself. That was his identity at its root core. David, which means beloved, and then the son of Jesse, which was his family identity or his family uh, legacy, his lineage. And I I find it interesting that that's how David uh, wanted to identify himself because you think of the, the number of ways that he could have identified or found identity in himself. But at the end of his life, when he could look over all of it, 
that the simplest common denominator that made him who he was, was his name and where he came from, his lineage or his family. And that's remarkable. Because when you think about David's family, David's family was nothing remarkable. What David accomplished in his life, that was remarkable. He'll get to that. But, but his family was just really just average. We know it was very large. He was one of eight boys and at least two girls. So if anyone in here is from or is over a large family, you know that's just crazy. You're living in chaos all of the time. We also know that his family was imperfect. There was conflicts. There was competition. We know that David's uh, childhood in some ways was tarnished. There was inequality. We saw early on that he was treated as inferior both because of his age and his appearance. He was left out in the field when guests of honor came to the house, almost as though, eh, let's leave David out there. You know, we know that he wasn't treated perfectly. And we also know that his family was very average. Uh, they were not well-to-do type of people. Um, David would say himself, when Saul called on him for a job, originally, David would say, who am I and what is my father's house? We're the least in our town. So they weren't rich, prominent people. They were just very mean people, very average people. We know that David's parents did their best with what they have, or at least David made the most of what he could get his hands upon because he was very well-rounded. He was musically gifted. We know that he was a warrior and that he could fight. We knew that he was smart and, and there was things that he had going for him. But I find it just interesting that David chooses to identify with his family and that he embraces his lineage. In just his last words, just wanting to make it known that this is who I am. I am David and I am the son of Jesse and I'm proud of it. And I think that's important because identity is massively important in life. And I'm not talking about the identity that you assume or that you try to uh, build into yourself or to portray to someone else. I'm talking about what you really are at the root and the core of your being. It is so very important. Your identity is the context and the background for your entire story and your entire life, and hopefully, really even for your salvation, what brings you uh, to the point of knowing the one who made you and the one who saved you. Your identity is the pearl of your existence. And if you just think about it for, for just a moment, you know, Jesus communicated in that language, and he said that every one of us has a pearl, because he said, don't cast your pearl before a swine. And if you just think about what a pearl is, a pearl is the precious thing that develops deep inside because of the agitations and difficulties <laughs> of what's also inside. And if you think about your early life, you know, and what shaped you and what made you and really what forms and informs your identity, a pearl is a great way to look at it. And, and your identity is the pearl of your existence. It's what's valuable about you. It's who you really are and it's unique to you. Your identity is also the key that unlocks your future. And here's why. Because you are the only one that is like you, and you're the only one that's going to fit in the future that God has planned for you. No one else will. And unless you come to realize and come to terms to embrace your true identity, you're not going to fit in the future that God has. Your identity is the key to unlocking your future, and it's also the framework of the crown that hopefully one day you will cast before Jesus when you see him face to face. 
Because the crown that has jewels in it that represent what you do fits upon your head. And that identity that you have is the framework of what you will accomplish. And one day you will realize that it's God that created, formed, breathed upon, and blessed you, your identity, and that that's what you're casting before him because he's the author of it. And so you realize how important your true identity actually is. And I say that because there are many in the days that we live in, probably throughout history, but it's certainly true now, that are ashamed of their identity or they run from their identity. It's easy for humans to see value in someone else and to not see the value that God has placed within them and they wish themselves away. We see in these days, we see guys who wish they were girls and girls who wish they were guys. They just don't want to be what they were made to be. We see moms that wish they were dads and dads that wish they were moms. We see intellects that wish they were athletes and we see athletes that wish they were better athletes. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems like it's very hard to find someone that's truly just aware of who they really are and willing to embrace that. And for that reason, there's many people that seek to create an identity for themselves, brand themselves, if you will, to creatively do something to give off an appearance or to inform their own identity in some way. But here's what you need to know, is that your identity is in you from God, and you cannot shape it, you can't change it, you can run from it, but you cannot get away from it ultimately. And here's what you need to understand, is that God both informs your identity, he created it, and he accepts your identity. And I want you to just listen to what the father spoke over Jesus at the moment his public ministry, his purpose began. It was when Jesus was baptized, and it's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it says that the heavens opened, the spirit of God descended upon him like the sun, and the voice of the father spoke over Jesus. And and the power of the declaration that sent him into what he was put on the earth to do was, this is my beloved son. That's identity. This is who you are and in whom I am well pleased. God informed his identity and he was accepted by God in his identity. And you need to know that that's true about you is that your identity has been informed by God and that he accepts you as you are. He does not wish that there was two of someone else and none of you. He made you on purpose and he finds value in you. And you wouldn't be more valuable if you were someone else or if you were like someone else or if you were born at a different time or into a different family or with a different personality or with different traits than what you have. He made you intentionally down to your fingerprint in the parts of you that are so small that you can't see and no one else can. He knows you and he loves you. And it's that identity that we are called upon to embrace. And sometimes it takes to our dying breath to do it. It wasn't so with David, but that's how he identified at the end of his life. He said, I am David and I am the son of Jesse. That's my identity at the root of what I am. God can do much with little. And it is neither a privilege nor a hindrance to God who I am. He can take, if I'm from an average family in an average town and I'm an average person or even below it, and he can do amazing things with that when it's surrendered and given to him. Or he can take the the best of what the world says, that's what you want to be, and it can come to absolutely nothing. 
The idea is embrace who you are, bring it to God, and let it be blessed and accepted. Okay, David then moves from declaring his identity to declaring his journey. He goes on from saying David, the son of Jesse, and he said, the man who was raised up on high. After recognizing his origin and where he came from, he then uses that as a marker for his destination. He says, I had a starting point in where I began, but from there, God picked me up and he brought me somewhere and he brought me extremely high. And when I look at where I began and where I ended, I realize that he brought me a very, 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 very long distance. Did you know that the word high is a very relative term? Do you remember when you were five years old and, and you were the first time, maybe you were younger than that, and you were on a playground and you were on the top of a slide and you looked down from that ladder that your knees were shaking on and you thought, this is high. And it was like fearfully high when you were there. You were dizzy looking at it, you know, and, and, and high. But then, you know, you get older. I remember I spent like five years of my life working on sky rises in Manhattan. You know, and I remember the shaking of my knees at first looking down and hanging over the edge and, you know, doing crazy things that if I was caught, I'd probably be arrested for, you know, because of safety violations and things that this is high. But even that, I mean, you can go, you can jump out of an airplane. You know, you can be in outer space. High is a very relative term, okay? And, And if you were born as the son of a king, your lineage is that you're going to inherit the throne. When you become the king, you have a high position, but you didn't climb that high. You were born as the son of the king. And so, yeah, you have a great position, but you weren't really raised up that high. You just inherited something, okay? But if you're born as nothing in an obscure place in an obscure family, and God takes your life, and he makes you the greatest king that ever was, that's high. And that's what David is saying. He's realizing God took me from a place of nothing and he gave me such privilege and such opportunity and he blessed my life in such a way and it was him that did it. He raised me up on high. I remember uh, a few years ago, we we hiked Brace Mountain, which is... um, it's a, the highest mountain in Dutchess County, but it's way over in like Pauling, right on the border of, of Massachusetts o- over there. And we hiked it as a family. And I remember um, Rocky and I kind of got separated from the fold a little bit. Uh, and we were sitting on a, on a certain point and we were looking back west. So we were looking this way towards Poughkeepsie from over there. And it was interesting that you could see different layers of, of the mountains in the distance. You could see like where Stissing Mountain is, like the closest ones. And then you could see like the gunks just on the other side of the river, the Schwangunks. And then you could see the Catskills beyond that. And it was like these stairs of, of mountains at, at different levels. And I remember sitting there with him and we were just taking it in and it was beautiful. And I, I just said to him, I said, Rocky, do you see all this right here? I said, I said, you can climb as high as you want. I said, you walk with God and let him be your father, and let him lead your life, and you keep your trust in him, and, and you can choose. You can go that high, or you can, go, you can go down there if you want, and just hang there if you want, build your house in the valley. I said, but if you walk with God, you can go there, you can go there, you can go there, you can go. He, there is no limit of what God will do with your life if you keep walking with him. And David was able to look from where he was at the end of his life and having walked with God, not perfect by any stretch. We've seen it and we know it, 
But walking with God for the entirety of his life, he's able to look at it and say, I am a man whom God has raised up on high. And there is no limit to what God can do in the life of the person that walks with him. He moves from declaring his journey to declaring his calling. And I love what David chooses to use to describe it. He says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. He, think of all the things he could have said right there. He could have said the king. He could have said the leader, the warrior, the giant slayer, the man of faith. He will call himself a psalmist in contextually a prophet, but he chooses above all of that to call himself the anointed of the God of Israel. The word anointed literally means to be sealed, filled, empowered, sent, and secured or kept, held by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be anointed, okay? It's to be filled with God, prepared by God, blessed by God, kept by God, and then uh, used by God in, in an amazing uh, and, and lasting way. That's what it means to be anointed. We live in a world um, where we see people, um, they go through life and they kind of move through promotions by degrees. And they get degrees. They, sometimes they get letters after their name, titles, uh, things added uh, to, to the description of who they are. And, and there's a process for that happening in the world's system. Okay, You go through your education, you work, you put in your time, you make your milestones, you, you meet accomplishments, and you are awarded degrees and titles based upon the work that you do and the time that you put in. That's how it works in the world. You climb that way. In the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, for the child of God, the person that belongs to God, to the casual observer from the outside looking in, it looks exactly the same. It looks like someone who walks with God, they're earning their elevation. They're moving along, and, and as they're faithful to God, as they accomplish certain things, as they get over certain barriers, God brings them to the next level. And, and, and that's what it looks like. It looks like you work in the kingdom of God towards a, a, an elevated level or, or a higher place than you actually are. But it's not at all. It's 0% like that. It looks the same on the outside. In the world, you work for your degrees, in the kingdom, you walk for your degrees. And there's a huge difference. Okay? Because when you work for it, you're earning it. But with God, you can't earn it. With God, you walk for it. And as you walk with him, he moves you along and he brings you forward and he does things in your life. Okay? So you, you answer a calling. He calls you. He saves you. He says, I've got a plan for your life. You say, okay, God, I'm in. And you begin walking with God. As you walk with him, you grow, you learn, you keep walking. You're prepared. You're given probationary power that he allows you to experiment with, in a sense, and use as you grow. You're faithful. You go through seasons of darkness and waiting and testing and preparation. You show faithfulness as you keep walking and God brings you into the place that he's prepared you for and he anoints you by his spirit to then bring the God element into what you're doing, okay? There's a God element. That's the anointing that you see in the scripture that David declares was on his own life. 
wherein he moved through all of what God had for him. He walked with God in it. And there was a point where God anointed him in his purpose. And there was a God element in it that stayed with him no matter what. Now, no matter what your function is in this life, whether you're a king like David or an apostle like Peter, or whether you are a salesman called by God to sell, or you are a craftsman called by God to build, or whether you are a mother that has been called by God to tend, there is an anointing that comes upon your life in the purpose that God has called you for. You say, come on, a mother anointing? Yes, I live with one, okay? It is, it is real, you know? The God anoints. You look at the disciples. The disciples were called by Jesus. They were interns. Then they were given probationary powers. Jesus said, hey, go cast out demons. Go heal the sick. Go raise the dead. And they did it. And they were like, Lord, <laughs> But it wasn't theirs. They tried to do it later. And they're like, oh, Lord, uh, we tried to do this and it just didn't work. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not there yet. Keep walking. You know, they walked with him. Then they were tested. Then they were in darkness and didn't know why things were happening the way they were happening. Then they showed themselves faithful. And then there was a moment where there was an anointing where God said, I'm going to use your life. You've walked with me. You've grown in me. Let's move. Let's go. And that's what David was able to declare over his own life. And when there is an anointing over your life, it touches every area of your life. And that's why David didn't say the king, the warrior, the musician. He said the anointed, because God has been in every area of my life. And that is the desire of our hearts, isn't it? And it isn't something that we can earn or work for but it's something that we walk in, that he speaks over us and that develops as we grow and walk in him. It's interesting that he calls himself the anointed of the God of Jacob. Did you notice that in the text? Why did he say the God of Jacob? Why not the God of Abraham? Why not the God of Moses? Why not the God of Samson, the warrior? You know why the God of Jacob? Because when you read Jacob, you're like, what? <laughs> you're like, you were, you were blessed by God, Why? You know, he, he was all over the place. He was so unstable and so unsteady and, and, and just hobbled his way, ran, you know, whatever. And, and David was like, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. When I look back at how God moved and what he did, I didn't deserve any of it. I couldn't have earned any of it. I just kept walking. I kept leaning. I kept trusting. And he brought me to that place. And what a hopeful thing, isn't it? To know that you could be about as, 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 as talented as Jacob. <laughs> and God can do with your life what he did with a man who became as great as David. He goes on to uh, describe what he would want his legacy to be uh, known as. And again, he doesn't call himself the king or the warrior, but he, he goes on to say uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He says, this is what I, I leave to you. This is what I'm giving. This is what uh, I have my gift to the world is the songs that he has prophetically spoken through me and to me. And how many of us have benefited from what was going on deep inside of David as he just shared his journal? <laughs> These are the things that God has done in me and the songs that came out of it. And, 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 and he has privileged me to be the one who would write the songs that would be used in worship and used in the lives of God's people for generations and, and millennia to come. Um, that he spoke, he says, goes on in verse two, and he says that the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my tongue. He spoke prophetically through me by the songs that he gave to me. And that's absolutely the case. He's both a prophet 
and a poet, and we're the better for it. That's his legacy. And then his final message uh, to humanity in verses 3 through 7. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So this word isn't coming from me. This is something that's come from God by his spirit through me to you. And here's what it is. This is what I want humanity to know. He says, he that rules over men must be just or fair, ruling in the fear of God. Those are the two qualifications for someone who will qualify to lead over people or will succeed in leading over people, that they must be absolutely fair and they must rule in the fear of God. That's absolutely essential uh, for the ruler, okay? Now, to rule over people, and whether that's from a government position or whether that's uh, just the head of a household who's leading a family or someone who's running a business or any other context where there is human leadership, that is dangerous, it is complicated, but it is necessary. It is something that you cannot get away from. When Adam, in the Garden of Eden, partook from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was bringing rulership over humanity off of the shoulders of God and placing it onto his own, which would then become the descendants that sprung from him. Human government is the byproduct of the fall. God ordained it. He affirmed it after the flood. When Moses was brought off of the ark, God said to Moses, hey, listen, if man sheds blood, then by Man shall man's blood be shed. It's on you, Moses, and your descendants to self-govern. That was the message that Adam declared on our behalf in the garden. It's the same message that was spoken to Jesus when he came and was presented as the king. What did the religious rulers say? They said, we will not have this man rule over us. God said, okay, then you do it. And ever since that time, It is given into the hands of men for us to self-govern and therefore government or leadership from person to person is necessary. And here's what you need to know about people and you guys already know it, is that people are equal, people are valuable, they're vulnerable, meaning that they can be exploited, they are honorable because we're made in the image of God and we are all made to be free. That is common and universal amongst all people, that we are made by God to be free. That's why Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. A leader's job who is ruling in fairness and in the fear of God, their role is to elevate, inflate, and defend these attributes of humanity. But a leader that isn't ruling in the fear of God can also exploit these things, injure people, destroy, and steal freedom from people. And the only thing that maintains what's proper and keeps it from becoming twisted and perverted into something that's not is a person that rules in the fear of God. If a leader does not lead in the fear of God, then they will exploit the vulnerabilities, take advantage of humanity, destroy people's lives and steal from them. That's just the fact. If you take God out of the leadership equation then all you have, and just think about it, think about this, all you have is competition for resources. That's it. 
That's all, that's all life is about. If you take, it's, it's Darwinism. It's survival of the fittest. Without God, I don't care about you. I care about me primarily. I care about you if it's convenient for me or if it's to my advantage in this season for this moment. But if I don't have God in my life, then you're not important to me. I don't care. I, don't see the, I only see the value in me. And so I just see competition for resources. And so when the world starts to get really crowded and, and when there, there is, seems to be a lack and a shortage of resources, when I can't get a car because there aren't enough people to make the chips that go into the cars to make the cars, and now getting things is no longer easy for me because there's too many people, well, now if I'm a ruler, I'm a leader, then something's going off inside of me and what keeps me from saying, well, maybe some people just need to die. If the hive is too big, split the hive. If there's too much, if there are too many deer in a specific area and there's too much competition for resources, then some of those deer need to die for the health of the population of the rest of those deer. And if God isn't in the equation and man isn't made in the image of God and all we are is animals then why would a leader or a ruler care truly about your life? And anyone who thinks that a godless government truly cares for their well-being needs to think otherwise. Probably not the best way to get along. Think, well, they care about people. Do they care about people? He that rules over men must be just. They must see humanity rightly and they must rule in the fear of of God. What's scary to me is that it's possible for once godly leaders to lose the fear of God. And then you, then you have nothing. You have a problem. <laughs> That's why we have checks, balances, and accountability uh, as values for most of us at least. David would go on and, and say furthermore, not only are they to rule in the fear of God and to be just, but then he, said, he says this in verse 4. Notice it. Uh, it'll go up on the, on the screen if you don't have it in the King James, which is very important because it says that he shall be. And, and maybe it'll go up there. If you look at those words, he shall be, uh, in, in the original language, they are in italics, which means that they're not there. So, so it more accurately reads that he shall rule in the fear of God and as the light of the morning. So the, the, the person who leads must rule in the fear of God and they must lead as the light of the morning when the sun rises. What does that mean? All right, how many of you today doubted whether or not the sun was gonna rise? You depended on the sun rising today, right? And thankfully, that's not something that we have to worry about when we lay our heads down. We have enough, right, that we have to think about when we lay our heads down. We don't have to think about that. That's kind of like, okay, the sun is going to rise tomorrow. I'm fairly certain of that. And David's saying that if you have some kind of a leadership role, then you better be dependable. You better do what you said you're going to do and be where you said you're going to be and be dependable. That's important if you're going to rule over people. And then he says, even as a morning without clouds. In other words, you better have a, a clear head. Keep your head clear. We have a part to play in that. Every one of us is subject to, to brain fog. Is there anybody not? Is there anybody in here that operates in perfect clarity all the time? Always. Because if you are, you, you can be my president. You can, I will, I will give you my life to run if you have a clear head all the time. No, we don't. We, we wake up and we're foggy. Sometimes we just have days we can't get it going for the life of us. But the idea is don't 
help the clouds cover your brain. Don't do things intentionally in your life that are going to make it harder for you to think and be sober and have good judgment. You know, be careful what you put in your mind. Keep it free for what it needs to do. And then he says, also, finally, he says, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Okay, what's the idea here? Grass always grows, right? That, that's, it never gets to the point where it's like, I'm done, I'm developed, time to dig it out of the ground and plant new grass if you want growth. No, as long as there is grass and water, grass grows, and that is essential for humanity, is that we're growing constantly, that we're constantly being watered. Jesus talked about the water of the word. He talked about the water, the living water of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And that as we continue to let the word wash over us and let the spirit continually fill us, we will be continually growing forever. We will never come to the point where we're done growing. We'll keep growing. And that is David saying, listen, if you're going to lead, or if you're going to appoint a leader on any level, in any context, keep growing. It should be a person that is continually growing, like the tender grass shining out of the rain. And then he acknowledges that he fell way short of this as a leader himself. Verse 5, he says, although my house be not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. David says, listen, this is the ideal. And he says, this is what I aimed at every day of my life. To be fair, to fear God, to be, as the son, dependable, to be clear-headed and sober in my judgment, and to be growing. This was my desire and my ambition every day of my life. He says, I fell insanely short of it. But God worked through my life anyway. Not because of me, but because of his promise and his covenant, and this is all my salvation. And I love that David said this here, because if he didn't say it, then I would never have any hope at all of ever being raised up on high or walking in God's anointing. Learn as a Christian, as a human, learn to live by grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is God's covering where we fall short. There are so many days that I wake up and I'm so aware of how I'm failing as a dad or as a husband or as a workman or as a mentor or as a friend. And I, I, I feel like every area of my life, I'm just not good enough in every area of my life. And so often I need God to remind me that I'm a friend by grace, that I'm a dad by grace, I'm a husband by grace. I do what I do by grace. That doesn't mean I do nothing and, and purposefully, you know, just flake out and do nothing. No, I do everything I can, but I trust him to make me sufficient where I am insufficient of myself. And that is what David is declaring over himself. He's saying, listen, I, I don't measure up to these things, but God has met me where I fell short and he made me sufficient to what I could not be in and of myself. Now he gives the contrast in verse six. He tells us what a good, godly leadership model is. And then he says, there are, there is an ungodly leader. Verse six, he says, but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, listen, because they cannot be taken with hands. The warning in the contrast 
is that there are sons of the devil that also have positions of leadership. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I know this is controversial, but he's right. There are people in positions of leadership that are not godly people. I know, I know, I know, I know I'm way out on a limb here and I should probably come back, you know, to, to reality. You know, no, everybody has, has good. Everybody's fair. Everybody's just, no, 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 no. There are some ungodly people that are calling the shots in our world right now. Are you guys aware of that? That's absolutely the truth, all right? Now, listen, David gives us facts concerning those ungodly rulers. And I'm so thankful that he does because I need to hear them. Here's what he tells us. First of all, he opens his description of ungodly sons of the devils that lead by saying they will be cast out. Amen. Amen. (laughs) That's a good amen. Though David would say it seems hopeless Though it seems that there is nothing that can unseat some people from positions of power, David declares they will be thrust out, though, he says, notice, they cannot be taken with hands. In other words, their removal from power will not come on account of human ability. It will not be the hands of humans, men, the schemes of people that will be powerful enough to remove them. They cannot be removed by hands. There is a power that is higher than the rule of human law. Did you know that? Let me just throw off a couple names, okay? The royal family, Clintons, Kremlin, Taliban, CDC. Okay, there are a lot of powers that are not going to be uprooted and unseated because they committed crimes against humanity. They are above the reach of human law. They control the underlords that enforce laws on everybody else. And so therefore, if they break the law, they control the people that enforce the law. Therefore, they are not going to be removed from their position, though they are sons of the devil. That's what David is saying. They cannot be taken with hands. That doesn't mean that they won't be thrust out. Notice what he says concerning those that would try to remove them in verse 7. He says, but the man that shall touch them. So the person that's going to try, you want to get your AR and you're going to go and you're going to storm the, ca- the, the, the palace and you're going to say, God for God and country, you know, or whatever. You know, you're going to start. He says, if you're going to try the man that shall touch them, listen, he must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. You better be pretty well defended and have pretty good insulation if you're going to attempt to do it because they are that powerful. And this was real in David's day, as it is in our day, it's true in every day. That's why David, by the Spirit of God, tells us this as a good king with his dying words or his last recorded words. He says, they, they must, if you're going to try, you must be fenced in with iron and the staff of a spear. He says, you better be defended. But here's the final fact. He says, not only they will be cast out, they cannot be taken by man, Those that try must be quite protected, but finally, they will fall. He says, they will utterly be burned with fire in the same place. They are not more powerful than God. 
God will have the last word. God will have his way and they will have their day in court. Listen to me, church. God is in control. That sounds so cliche, doesn't it? But it is so true. God is in control of the things that are going on in the earth. When we get into chapter 24 next week, we're going to see this amazing interaction between the kingdom of God in heaven, the kingdom of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and the kingdoms of men. It's the, it's the chapter where David calls for a census. And, and it is so puzzling because it says that the Lord was displeased with Israel. So he moved Satan to influence David to call for a census that would ultimately bring judgment, justice, and a good outcome in the end. And you're going like, wait a minute, who's, you know, just wait for it. It's because you, you, you're going like, who's doing, it's God. God uses dark things to bring forth judge, judgment and justice on earth, to remove wickedness, to change environments and bring forth outcomes. And ultimately at the end, you say, hey, wow, that was all pretty good. And it's amazing. It involves a pestilence and people dying. It's a great chapter. Come back. You know, you see that, man, God just doesn't change. Things just are the same all in all. But understand this. God is sovereign. God is in control. He's orchestrating all these things and he will have the last laugh. And though it seems that there are powerful people in powerful positions and nothing can do anything about it, it is not true. So where is your trust and where is your hope? I had planned to go through the whole chapter. I had also planned, I had also planned to go really quickly through the rest of it. So don't think that I'm just like taking, you know, more time than I intended to, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. Here's what your homework is is to go read the rest of chapter 23 and read the catalog of David's mighty men. That's what, what it is. It's just all of the warriors that were raised up around David. And you know what you're going to find is that it's an affirmation of everything that David said in his last words. Because essentially what happened to the people that were around David is that they were distressed, discontented, and indebted people that found their own identity. And you'll see in the passage that none of them have common origins. They're all from different places and different families. But they found their personal identity as they rallied around David and they were also raised up on high, did amazing things, and left a lasting legacy as a testimony to all the rest. And so my questions for you, and the musicians, you guys can come because we're going to close. But my questions for you tonight is just to consider and just to think, do you really know who you are and how valued you are by God and how valuable your life is to him? Are you a person that embraces that? that says, okay, God, I know there's things about me that I really hate and really can't stand and really wish that were different. But I trust you in spite of those things. Things that I wish I could change about myself. Things that I wish were different. I wish I was born in a different time or in a different family or under different circumstances. But I embrace the fact that you made me the way you made me. You put me in the world in the time that you did. And God, I want to be who you made me to be. So let your spirit 
Come into communion and connection with mine and you do with my life what you want to do with my life. Are you walking with God right now in a way where there is a process and a progress where maybe you can't see clearly what's coming in the future, but you can at least look back and say, God, you've brought me a long way. Because when I consider where I was and what I was at the beginning, and I know I'm not what I'm going to be, but I know I'm also not what I would have been had you not gotten a hold of my life. And Lord, I want to continue to walk with you, continue to move in you. And are you being watered and growing and pursuing and seeking and asking God and saying, Lord, fill me, fill me with your spirit day by day. Water me in your word day by day. Keep me in step and in tandem with you. Keep me in the narrow path and keep my eyes fixed, firmly fixed on you and set my trust and my hope only in you in these days. We have the opportunity in these days, like no other time in human history, to have hope when things look hopeless. But it will not come if your hope is in the wrong place. Our hope is in the God who is sovereign over all the things that are going on. And in his ability to insulate his people, to lead and direct our steps, and to bring us through this in one piece on the other side, however he chooses to do it. And are we willing as a people to put our trust in him in such a way that he's able to do it? Would you stand with me? I want to pray over you as we close. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for your power, your ability, and what you say and speak. And I pray right now over this congregation of people. I pray over us. And I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that right now you would take our eyes off of whatever plane it's on and that you would lift them perfectly upward. That we would take our eyes off of people, off of politics, off of conditions and circumstances, off of trends, off of fears, off of worries, and that we would fix them firmly upon the one who is seated on the throne. In your presence, there is a river. The streams thereof make glad the city of our God. In your presence, there's a sea of glass and perfect peace. In your presence, there's the voice of the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the pillars of your house shake at the voice of him that cries. And tonight, God, we with one voice, we declare your glory, we declare your power, we declare your authority, and we declare our trust, that our trust would be fully set in you. Thank you that you declare over us that you will keep us as the apple of your eye. Thank you for the covenant of your cross and of the blood of your son that washes us to perfection, clean as snow. May we walk in that perfection. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that is our power, our lamp, our light, and our hope. So fill us, focus us, and Lord, help us where there needs to be repentance, adjustment, or change. For we look to you now, Lord, to be our God. And we put our trust in you, in Jesus' name. Listen, if you don't know Jesus personally here tonight, and that is for whatever reason that it is, I want to declare to you that God loves you and he knows you perfectly. 
And he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years to pay the penalty for the sins that you committed that you couldn't atone for yourself. And he did that because he loved you and there was no way that you could save yourself. And his message to you tonight right now is that you, if you will put your faith in him to just trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and to turn your life to him and let him come in, that he'll wash you clean, that he'll fill you with himself, that he'll open your understanding and your heart and he'll begin to guide and move and direct your life and you'll begin a relationship with him. And it's as simple as just opening your heart and saying yes to Jesus and receiving what he did. It says in John chapter one, verse 12, to as many as received him, it's that simple, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. Is there anybody here tonight before we close that you say, I want to open my heart to Jesus. I just want to pray and open my heart to him. If you just lift up your hand and and say, yes, I want Jesus in my heart. I see a hand in the front. Is there anybody else here that God, you you say, God, I want it. I I hear it. I see it. But it's, it's like, is it real? It's real. It's so real. Father, I pray for for those that even in their hearts are responding now, those that raise their hands and and those that are, are just taking it in. Lord, I pray that you would hear the repentant heart and the open heart and the needy heart and that you would meet them where they are with the same identity and acceptance that you gave to Jesus when you said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So seal and open those hearts right now, oh God. Let salvation continue. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.